When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we examine a new report that details a sexual abuse crisis within the Southern Baptist Convention. And we talk with poet James Dixon. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. One of the largest religious denominations in Mississippi is the subject of a new report. It details years of misleading sexual abuse and assault cases. According to an investigation by a third party, the Southern Baptist Convention systematically mistreated and cast aside abuse survivors. The report finds the denomination's executive committee treated them as liars and, quote, professional victims. Church leaders also used the SBC's in-house news service, the Baptist Press, to smear people who brought allegations of assault to light. Sean Parker is the executive director of the Mississippi Baptist Convention Board. Well, I was terribly heartbroken uh, to read uh, what I read in that report. And, um, you know, some of the report uh, was information that was already known to some degree. Uh, Of course, there was added detail in the report. And then some of it was uh, was unknown. And uh, it, it was all troubling and heartbreaking. And I, I take it as a mandate for us uh, to redouble our efforts in doing better as Southern Baptists. So are you saying that it was unknown that there was sexual assault cases that were not addressed? Uh, well, I, uh, some of the information was certainly uh, uh, a complete um, bit of news to us. Uh, particularly uh, the information related to uh, prominent leader Dr. Johnny Hunt. Uh, I I haven't talked with anyone that was aware of that prior to the report. Some of the other information that was reported, at at least uh, some of that information had already been reported in um, outlets such as Baptist Press and, and, uh, and other outlets. Of course, the report added detail to it, for sure. Are you getting reaction from churches in the state? 
Uh, yes, I, I talk with many of our pastors, and uh, their their questions are: um, How should we respond to this? Um, how can we uh, assure our churches that that their participation and commitment to Southern Baptist causes is still worthwhile? And and we're talking through that, and uh, you know, I'm trying to trying to help them think through those questions and, and formulate some responses that are filled with integrity and based on the report and, uh, and are reassuring to our churches. One of the things, um, several things that stand out, but one is that members wanted a database kept to follow officials, pastors, whomever in the denomination uh, who was accused of sexual assault the leaders of the denomination said they couldn't do it, but they did keep a private database of these individuals. Why do you think this was done? Do you have any idea? Well, as I read the report and the statements from some of the leaders, uh, their decision at the time was that the, the National Sexual Offense Registry was maybe a better resource for churches to utilize. And so I think that was a motivation for for not developing uh, uh, an additional list that uh, that might be incomplete and be misleading to, to churches in in that regard. Uh, but I, I certainly think at this point that we we need to take every measure we possibly can to uh, ensure that uh, that allegations and uh, and convictions that uh, that are made of Southern Baptist leaders, leaders within our Southern Baptist churches, uh, are adequately communicated to our entire network of uh, of churches. Do you know why there was such resistance to dealing with the issue within the leadership? I don't know that I can say with uh, exactness what their motivation was, uh, but it seems to me, based on the report, that uh, there was more attention given to protecting the Southern Baptist Convention instead of taking care of, of victims and preventing further abuse from occurring. And so, you know, I think it was just a matter of priority. And, and while we all want to protect, uh, you know, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a part of that, uh, part of that protective effort needs to be taking care of those in the church, especially who are vulnerable. So that means over the years, because this has been going on for several decades, there are a lot of hurting people, maybe who have left the denomination, some who are still in the denomination and in deep pain. Well, I would suspect that's the case. And, uh, and certainly we need to do everything we can as the Christian church to minister to those individuals uh, by listening to them, uh, by repenting and apologizing for any disregard that might have been demonstrated uh, by, by others within our denomination, and, uh, and by redoubling our efforts to ensure that, that this kind of abuse doesn't continue uh, in in any church, anywhere, whether it's Mississippi or, or another state across the country. Have you received complaints about sexual abuse or assault in Mississippi? We, we have not received um, complaints of that regard uh, recently, at least. Uh, there certainly have been some issues over the course of, of the last number of years that, uh, that were properly addressed. But I think most uh, people have been taking their issues to the Southern Baptist Convention level, and uh, that's precisely why 
this this investigation was focused on the executive committee of the of the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you give us some idea of what was done on the state level in these instances? Well, it, uh, most of the incidences that have occurred were prior to to my service as the executive director. Um, so I don't know that I can speak directly to, to those incidences, but uh, but I, I can share with you that. Uh, that if a call should come into us, uh, certainly we're going uh, we're going to take every measure we can to ensure that um, a report is filed uh, that we support and encourage, and uh, we certainly would want to make sure that the local church is aware of of what may be going on. We want them to at least know about the allegation. I understand that the denomination has a loose structure, so the headquarters doesn't have complete authority over the local church? Is that accurate? Well, we actually like to say that the headquarters for the Southern Baptist Convention and the headquarters for the Mississippi Baptist Convention is the local church. Uh, We're we're not hierarchical in nature. Uh, We are related to each other by voluntary cooperation. Uh, so no local church is answerable to the Mississippi Baptist Convention or, or the Southern Baptist Convention. And we, we provide supervision. Uh, we we really do not have the authority to to provide instruction or directives to them. We provide support. We can give encouragement, and certainly when they look to us, that's precisely what we attempt to do. So if there's something wrong, and it comes to your attention, you can't step in as the state leader and tell them this needs to be handled. And this is how you need to do it. We certainly can advocate for that. Uh, we would not be able to. Um, we would not be able to remove a pastor from the position because that is a decision that would be made by the local church because they are congregationally led. But if we became aware of an issue, uh, we would not sit idly by and just expect someone else to handle the situation. We would we would advocate and uh, we would attempt to intervene and and at least ensure that uh, that church leadership is aware of the allegation and responding to it accordingly. One of the things that came out of the report is that headquarters was trying to avoid being sued as a result of the release of this report, would it be logical to assume that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits? Well, I, I certainly think that could be a possibility. Um, I really have no way of knowing that. Um, but, you know, whether that happens or not, I think that uh, we're committed to caring for the survivors uh, and and within the Christian church, uh, there ought to be a commitment to that, probably uh, that is stronger than any commitment anywhere. And uh, so, uh, lawsuit or not, we want to ensure that they're cared for, uh, not not just materially but spiritually as well. What happens to these leaders that are in positions of power? Well, truthfully, I, I don't know that there are any of them that are in a position of leadership currently. And my, my guess is uh, that those who are in leaderships of position uh, are probably going to be addressed directly. Uh, the one thing that I am thankful for is that, uh, that many of the individuals who were mentioned in the report are no longer in positions of leadership. 
and that those who are in positions of leadership currently recognize this issue and are willing to address it directly. And I'm very thankful for that. And, of course, the Southern Baptist Convention isn't the only organization that is dealing with issues of sexual abuse and assault, the Catholic Church. I mean, and even secular organizations like Boy Scouts have dealt with this issue. And I think that goes to what you said about the culture now. So how is there a way to address this? to prevent so many instances. Do you have any idea how many women are affected by this, women and men? Uh, no, I, I don't know that I have any statistics on that, uh, but I do believe that uh, the systemic issue is uh, the prevalence of sexual immorality. And, uh, of course, we... We, as the Christian Church, we as Mississippi Baptists, uh, are of the conviction that um, that we live in a broken world, and we're broken because of our disconnection to God. And the uh, fundamental answer to that is is to help people reconnect with God in a meaningful way through Christ our Lord. And uh, then beyond that, I think it's imperative that uh, that we take whatever steps we can to fight against the industry of pornography. Uh, and uh, and to fight against all of the sexual immorality uh, industries that are at work within our culture. And, uh, and we are committed to doing that. Sean Parker with the Mississippi Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you so much for your time in speaking with us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Desiree. Coming up, we talk with poet James Dixon. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. James Dixon is a high school teacher in Mississippi. He's also a poet. His new collection of poems is called Some Sweet Vandal, and it dwells on that fundamental intersection in his life of poet and educator. He writes about the mundane, french fries on the lunchroom floor, a janitor humming Christmas carols. But he also writes poems like this one. After another school shooting, I cook red beans and rice. It reads, I can't hear the TV news over the soothing static of diced onion in the pan. States away, children bled. In my kitchen, oregano and cayenne bloom over celery. Then broth, kidney beans soaked overnight. Basmani, an hour later, comfort, food. My bowl is warm, heavy like my son asleep on my chest. I can't stop things or start them. I can only cook dinner, sit at a table with wife and child, and eat. We taped an interview with James Dixon late last week, not knowing a gunman would kill 21 people at an elementary school in Texas a few days later. We want to share that conversation with you now. James speaks with MPB's Michael Guidry. Teachers, we get to... We get to interact with the future before it's actually the future, which is is a daunting task if I stop and think about it. 
in, it is it is frustrating, and the frustration comes from an infinite number of directions, and it can be heartbreaking, and the heartbreak comes from an infinite number of directions. But but also there is there's a great deal of hope. You know, I teach mostly eleventh graders, and you know these these eleventh graders are a lot of them are <laughs> silly enough to think that they can change the world because they haven't believed the lies that adults tell about how the world is not going to change. So to, to deal with high school students, I think is, is a, it's a way to change the future. You know, it's a, it's a way to write the future that has not happened yet. And, you know, I think a lot of times people outside of the school building or folks who don't have a direct connection with what goes on inside of a school, forget that, right? Teaching gets politicized uh, and it t- gets turned into a flag that, you know, political candidates either want to wave or burn. And the, the person of the student is forgotten about. So teaching high school, teaching high school in Mississippi and just teaching in general, you know, I'm in the business of teaching people right? The medium I happen to use is English, but at the end of the day, my hope is that I'm teaching teaching people how to be decent human beings uh, while I'm also figuring that out myself. A little while ago, you mentioned, you know, the heartbreak that's, comes up, that, that's a part of it sometimes and how it comes from all different directions. Um, you know, looking through this collection, I mean, that there. There's a lot of shared grief. Um, what does it mean when it comes to losses of, like, the loss of students, or with with, with that you have close proximity to, or in one instance, just about a school shooting? Um, that every time that happens, we see the education community kind of just recoil. What does it mean to you as a teacher to write about that grief, but also put it out there for the community that you serve, the students, the parents, to see you express that grief? Yeah. The um. A poem that I got clued into uh, when I was in grad school was titled uh, Elegy for Jane by Theodore Retke, and, and it's about a, a college student in a class that, that the poet Theodore Retke was teaching, and um, uh, a student uh, died in, a, in an accident, uh, was thrown off of a horse. Uh, and the end of Retke's poem, he describes himself as I, who have no rights in this matter, neither father nor lover. Um, you know, we've, got, we've got a mold for how a parent should grieve a child who has passed away, right? There's, and there's a mold for how a lover should grieve the loss of a beloved. But there's, there's not really a mold, right? There's not an archetype for how a teacher should grieve the death of a student. And there should be, because that is something that, that teachers have to endure, whether we, we like it or not. And it's not something that, you know, there's not an education class for it uh, to, to take in college. Uh, and it's weird, awful territory uh, to have to navigate. So part of the writing of those, of the student elegies in particular, is personally, just to help myself navigate through the loss, uh, but also to, to show the larger community, to remind them that, 
you know, teachers are in, in a lot of ways bound to our students. And I mean, that's why we use that, that possessive pronoun, right? Ours, they are mine. And, you know, there, there, is, there is a bond there. It's not the bond between father and child. It's not the bond between lover and beloved. It's, it's not the bond between a brother or any other sort of firm relationship. But there is a relationship that occurs within the nine months between the teacher and the student that we don't do a whole lot of, we as a society don't do a whole lot of thinking about. Uh, maybe because it's temporary, you know, they're, they're with me for nine months and then they move on. But, but I, so I wrote those also to, to show educators, hey, it's okay to feel, right? To show non-educators, hey, this is what it's like, just to, to, to validate, I guess, uh, to validate that grief that is oftentimes misunderstood or ignored uh, or just not even noticed completely. The title of the book comes from the first line of the first poem, uh, Coco Pelli. What can you tell us about the choice? Because to, to, it's, it's not the name of any one particular poem. It's from the first line of that poem. Tell, tell us more about that choice and who Some Sweet Vandal is. So the, the Coco Pelli was a, a Hopi deity, uh, and one of the things under the Coco Pelli's charge was harmless mischief. And when I think about that phrase, you know, high school comes to mind. Um, all of the, the the silly, mischievous things that high schoolers do, uh, not out of malice, but just because it's fun. And the idea for the poem came from uh, uh, something that happened in real life at, at a school that I taught at previous to Germantown High. Some student, and I'm just assuming it was a student because I can't imagine a faculty person doing this, made a chain of, of clover blossoms and wound them up one of the handrails in the main staircase of the school. And so that that prank, that harmless mischief, just sort of struck me as, as kind of sweet and beautiful, even though it was technically vandalism. You know, a little bit of a little bit of beauty added to this, you know, giant cinder block monolith that, that is a school building. And I was also surprised to watch students keeping it intact. They they avoided grabbing the handrail. They didn't rip the thing down. And so they were they were teetering up the staircase, mindful of this simple, sweet vandalism, but also respecting it uh, in, a, in an odd way. And so, that, yeah, that, that image uh, just sort of stuck with me and, and was sort of the central, you know, that was the, the seed more or less of the poem. With all that being said, would you mind sharing that with us? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Some sweet vandal has coronated the handrail with a chain of woven clover blossoms. I was surprised to see my students leave the helix intact, avoiding the rail. They leaned under their backpacks, teetering against beauty's uselessness. That's poet James Dixon. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Autocorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.